0: Good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open it to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're at in our study of 1 Peter. Before we dive into that text today, I want to say a brief word about the historic decision that was handed down by the Supreme Court this week. We rejoice that Roe versus Wade has been overturned and that the decision about abortion is handed back to the states. This is a huge step in a really good direction for our country. And we have every reason to celebrate. So praise the Lord. By the way, our rejoicing over this is perfectly in step with our statement of faith here at First Baptist Church, which speaks to this matter in two different sections. First, in section 15 on the Christian and the social order, it says, we should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn, And contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Speaks of it also in section 18 on the family. Saying children from the moment of conception are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. So our celebration of this is not political. It's in line with our statement of faith. That's the good news. The bad news is we live in a state that is likely to double down on abortion on demand. And even invite women from neighboring states where elective abortion has already become illegal in the last couple of days to come to Illinois to abort their babies. In light of that, we can hang our heads in defeat. We can shake our fists in anger. We can wag our fingers in condemnation. Or we can double down. We can double down on our commitment to love and serve women in crisis pregnancy situations. We can double down on coming alongside them and encouraging them to choose life for their babies. We can double down on providing resources for them as they need. We can double down on providing counseling for them and all of this while walking alongside them as we testify to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that, all of that is within the vision and the ministry of our Pregnancy Resource Center here at First Baptist Church that is going to be needed now more than ever before, right? So let me say, let me say it this way. Let me say it another way, really simply. Volunteering one hour at the Pregnancy Resource Center is worth 10,000 Facebook posts. Or 10,000 grandiose speeches about our stand for life. So Jessica Heron, will you stand up, Jess? Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) Jessica Heron is the the leader and director of that ministry. And listen, if you've got an hour to give on Friday morning or any time during the week, if you've got 10 minutes to give and you want to give it to this ministry, Jess is the person to talk to and she will plug you in somewhere. Or if you've got some kind of resources to donate, she will tell you where to donate them. It's a good work that is needed now more than ever, and that's the best thing we can do. Amen? All right, now to the text. That's what we're about. Last week, we moved out of the most difficult passage in the New Testament into a new chapter, uh, a new paragraph, but I told you it is not a new thought. Peter doesn't take a break and then move on to something different. In fact, it seems like Peter doesn't even take a breath as he calls for the people that he is writing to to devote themselves to holiness to practical, observable holiness that flows out of their union with Christ. He calls them and he calls us to pursue that holiness, even if it results in increased hostility from the fallen world amongst whom they live, because we have the promise of eternal life. We sang a second ago, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever, and we believe that. This is a word about holiness that we need on a regular basis, but it is not a word that we usually like. It's not a word that draws a big crowd these days. Holiness is not hot these days, but holiness is clear in the scriptures. Holiness is expected. Holiness is necessary. The singular imperative in the text last week was to arm yourselves, It was this militant, military language, arm yourselves. And we said, arm yourselves with what? What is the weapon that we are to arm ourselves with? It is the attitude of Christ. It is the mindset of Christ that is seen in a dedication to holy living, that is displayed in commitment to fight sin and submission to the Father's will. We see that in Jesus all the way through. We also see the attitude of endurance through persecution with joy because of eternal vindication. That mindset of Christ is what we need to arm ourselves with. How do we get that? How do we get that weapon? If we're to arm ourselves with that weapon, how do we get that weapon? We get that weapon by knowing the mind of Christ through personal spiritual disciplines, especially Bible intake. The closer we walk with Jesus, the better we will know him. And the better we know him, the better we will know his mind. And the more we can arm ourselves with that same mindset. So walk closely with Jesus in a life of spiritual discipline. How do we get the weapon? Through spiritual disciplines. Against whom do we wield this weapon? Well, not against the world. We don't go fight against the world with this weapon. We don't fight against each other with that weapon. No, we fight the internal struggle between the flesh and the spirit with this weapon. We fight the battle within. We fight the lusts of the flesh, which are waging war against our very souls, Peter told us in a text not too long ago. Pastor Dylan asked this question, How often are you at war with your flesh? How often are you at war with your flesh? How often is your flesh at war with you? Every minute, every second of every day. And so how often do you need to be armed with the mind of Christ? Every minute, every second of every day. And so I called you as a church to pursue practical holiness. I told you, time's up. Time's up for living like the world. So repent and fight your sin. Submit to God's will. Endure the pain that might come as a result of all this and rejoice in the hope of eternal life. That's what we are to do as God's people. And I said to guests and visitors with us who are not trusting in Christ for their salvation, they are not repenting of their sins, they are outside, I told you that this road that you are on leads to destruction. It definitely leads to destruction. But Christ died for sinners, so trust in him. He died to change people's lives. So repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and find new life. Find new friends that can help you walk the narrow road that leads to life. Find new hope for life everlasting. Interestingly, at the end of the service last week, Joe Jackson, our good buddy, our friend, our brother, uh, approached me and he said, Hey Chris, this day, 28 years ago, is the day my life changed. This day, 28 years ago, I came to see that the way I was going was empty. It was futile. And time was up for living that way. By God's grace, got a new heart, got a new life, got a new vision, got a new plan, got a new road to walk, right? Father's Day, 1994, 28 years ago, his life changed. Praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. And that can happen with you as well. I love to hear Joe talk about that old life. How much he pursued happiness and joy and satisfaction in the world and how empty it left him at the end of the day. And I love to watch Joe now live in the satisfaction that only Christ can provide. Live with a purpose that only he can give us. It's a beautiful thing, right? And we should all be encouraged. We should all be encouraged that there is hope for life change and there is purpose to live for Christ. We don't do it perfectly, do we, Joe? (laughs) But it's brand new and we're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ every day by his grace. Amen to that. This week, we're going to start what is going to be four weeks of looking at the next section of 1 Peter. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 is going to take us four weeks, a whole month to get through. What I'm going to do today is explain the structure and why we're going to take four weeks at it. Then I'm going to talk about the statement, the end of all things is near. And you're prepared to receive that because of the things we've been singing. Like we've prepared your heart to consider the end of all things being near and how we should respond to that. And then we're going to focus in on the call to sound judgment sober thinking for the purpose of prayer so basically we'll be zooming in closely on verse 7 today so read it with me 1st peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11 this is god's word it says the end of all things is near therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. and Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven. Give us a sense of urgency, give us a sense of expectation in light of the nearness of the end, and call us into clear and sober thinking that marks our prayers. We're super thankful today for the privilege of prayer, and we ask that you would grow us in the practice of it. Make us people who pray, in our closets, by ourselves, alone, and in our gatherings together in this place. Lord, we all need growth in this area, and we trust that you can provide it, we ask that you would provide it. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the structure of 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7 through 11. I tried to indicate the different parts by using colors, and I think Doug can put the text on the screen with these different colors, and I hope that this will help you some as we talk through it. Basically, we see three things happening in this text. First, we see this basis. We see the basis of the calls to action when he says the end is near. The end is near is the basis of everything he's going to say. Then we see four calls to action. We see a call to pray. We see a call to love. We see a call to hospitality. And we see a call to service. And then at the end, we see the purpose of all of this. Namely, that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. So we see this basis and we must understand this. This indicative statement of fact, the end of all things is near. And therefore, Peter's going to call us to four types of action. He's going to give us four imperatives that we should obey in light of the nearness of the end. And then he's going to show us the purpose, the divine purpose of all of this, which we will spend more time on that last bit this weekend. So if the colors didn't help, maybe this kind of structure will help with the bullet points. So we see that basis, the end of all things is near, be of sound judgment, keep fervent in your love, be hospitable, employ it in serving. And then we come back to all of this being so that in all things God will be glorified. So basically, instead of trying to give you all of that in one shot, what I'm gonna do today is say, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Next week, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm going to say the end of all things is near, therefore, above all, keep fervent in your love, so that in all things God will be glorified. The week after that, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to say the end of all things is near, therefore, be hospitable to one another. Without grumbling, you're going to love that part. So that God will be glorified. So you get it? That's the way we're going to proceed. But I want you to receive it all in one shot. All right, I, I wish I wish you would stay for three or four hours and we just tackle all of this today, um, but I know better. Um, and so we're gonna break it up like this, but, but over the, the, like, so this is part one of four that we're gonna look at today. Fair enough? You understand the structure? Good, that's gonna be our approach for the next few weeks. Let's talk first today about this business of the end of all things. The first part of verse seven says, the end of all things is near, therefore. There are basically three ways scholars interpret Peter's reference to the end of all things in this text. And I want us to talk about all three of them, although I argue for the first one. Some, number one, argue that Peter is referring to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. That he is referring to the end of all things, which is sometimes referred to as eschatology. The study of last things. So some people say that Peter is making a reference to the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, the end of all things. And I tend to think that that that's what Peter means by this. I tend to think that's what he's talking about. John Piper uh, drew out a very helpful image for us to understand what's going on here. And I want to show you that on on the screen. Well, I got a little distorted in the translation. That's okay. Uh, This will work. Piper drew this out, like, as he was talking. He does this thing called Look at the Book, where he's like uh, John Madden, if you're, if you're a football fan, where John Madden will take a play that's on the screen, and then he'll take this little pencil and draw all over it. Piper does that with the Bible, and it's brilliant. Um, but I, I tried to clean it up a little bit so I could show it to you, because the argument basically is from the New Testament that there is a basic two-ages approach in the New Testament. Now, if we were going to zoom in with a microscope, we would, we would divide a lot more little parts in this. But if we're going to zoom out a little bit and think about all of history, all of time and eternity, we would say there are basically two ages. There is this age and the age to come. That's probably backwards, right, on the screen? There's this age and the age to come. And we see that spoken of in the scriptures consistently. We see it in Matthew chapter 12. Doug, I should have told you that we're going to have to go like back and forth to that image a bunch of times. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. All right, And and I'm just showing you a couple of instances where we see that kind of language throughout the New Testament. There is this age and the age to come. We see it also from Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Where he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. All right, so let's establish that there is a general two ages approach in the New Testament. There is this age and there is the age to come, right? And when we talk about this, we would talk about the futureness of the age to come. Sometimes we talk about the age to come as the kingdom of God right? The age to come is yet to come. And so we talk about it in the future tense. It is coming in its fullness. It is coming in its culmination at the return of Christ. And we have a longing and an expectation for that day, right? That's part of what we sing about. That's part of what we sing about when he returns or calls me home here in the love of Christ. I say here in the power of Christ, I stand right. We long for the day of Christ's return. Do you feel Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is a new creation coming? It is. We long for that day when he wipes every tear away and makes all things new. That day is coming. And so we are right and biblical to talk about the futureness of that day. We see this in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus is having his last supper with his close followers. And he says this, when the hour had come, Luke says, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. All right? So, so even Jesus is talking about that kingdom of God as something that is coming in the future. All right? So there's a futureness of the age to come. But there's also, in the New Testament, a presentness of the kingdom of God. There's a presentness of the age to come. And at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom, the age to come, invaded this present age. And so we see this in in the little picture of that dotted line at the top. The age to come has invaded this age at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So that which is to come is already present in some sense. And Jesus speaks about this as well in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, when he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And man, there are a bunch of places in the New Testament where Jesus talks about that, like the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. So there is a futureness to the age to come, but there also is a presentness to the age to come that started at the incarnation of Jesus. And so we live in this already, but not yet, last days scenario, which is the candy stripe portion. That candy-stripe portion is where we live. We could call it the last days. We could call it the end. We could call it the already not yet inaugurated eschatology. We could call it a lot of things. But that's where Peter's audience lived, and that's where we live in this tension. And we see that. We see that already in 1 Peter. Peter's already used this kind of language with his audience in chapter chapter 1, verse 20, when he said, for he, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. John calls the days that we live in the last days in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 18, when he says, Children, it is the last hour. Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming... Just as you heard that there's a futureness to this, he says, even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. What I want you to see from all of this talk and that little image is that we are living in the last days. And we have been for 2,000 years. When we think of the last days, we don't need to simply think of days to come. We need to think about the era that we live in even now so that Peter says the end of all things is near. And what we see in the New Testament is that the New Testament authors regularly used eschatology, used the reality of the end is near, these are the last days as motivation for people to live with practical righteousness. It's like the end of all things is at hand. These are the last days. So build a tent on your roof and get a big telescope so you can watch the moon so that you'll know exactly when it's going to happen. Is that the way the New Testament reads? No, the New Testament reads like this. The end is near. These are the last days. So walk closely with Jesus and proclaim the gospel boldly to your neighbors and be found faithful when he comes. That's the way it goes, right? It's a call to practical living based on the nearness of the end. Let me give you some examples if you don't trust me on that. Romans chapter 13. Again, New Testament authors regularly using eschatology as a motivation for practical righteousness. Romans 13, 11 says, Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Is that that not exactly what we're seeing in 1 Peter from last week? He was like... The time already is sufficient for you to have lived like the Gentiles in drunkenness and carousing and all of these things. That time is up. Now it's time to live in the light. And that's the transition that Peter is making in our text today. What's it look like to live in the light, in, in light of the nearness of the end? How should we live? We should live with Christ-likeness. We should live with righteousness. We should live with holiness. The apostle Paul says it clearly in Romans 13. He also says it clearly in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at this text. See if this is not really parallel to what we're looking at in 1st Peter. It says now as the times and epochs, brethren, as to times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains, like labor pains upon a woman woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, alert and sober for those who sleep, do they're sleeping at night, But those who get, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So so when Paul thinks about the nearness of the end, the end of the darkness and the coming of the day, what does he say to the people? So live according to the light. So walk as children of the light. The thought of the end of days should not lead us to conspiracy, should not lead us to speculation. It should lead us to holiness. So I believe that Peter is following suit with other New Testament authors, using the impending return of Christ, using the resurrection of the dead, using the final judgment as a motivation for holy living in the present for his readers. But that creates a problem. 2,000 years later, that creates a problem, right? If Peter 2,000 years ago is saying, the end is near, so live right. Fast forward 2,000 years, and what do your neighbors say when you say the end is near? They say, yeah, the end is near. The end is near. You've been saying that for 2,000 years, Christians. Live right because the end is near. Follow Jesus because the end is near. 2,000 years you guys have been singing the same tune and the end has not come. That raises a problem, right? The delay of the end seems to raise a problem. But it's a problem that Peter himself anticipates. And it's a problem that Peter addresses in 2 Peter chapter two, or chapter 3. So turn there. This is too long to put on the screen. Turn there. It's one page. You can do it. Second Peter chapter 3. Start reading with me in verse 3. Remember, we're trying to address this objection that people would say, there's no end. Come on. You can't use the, the threat of the end as motivation when it hasn't happened in 2,000 years. Look at what Peter says. He says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, in the last days, Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of, the, of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Press pause there. One, one preacher said, so we're on day two. If that's the case, read on. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its work will be burned up. Since all these things are are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people are you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. There are a couple of things going on there. One, he's saying, oh, he doesn't see it the way you see it. These scoffers say, oh yeah, for 2,000 years, it's all been going the same. Oh, for the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is like a day. It's not the same for him. What does he mean by soon? It's not the same for him, so don't scoff about it. And the second thing we see in this text is don't scoff because the delay is designed to bring about repentance. The the delay is so that people can turn from their sins and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation. Those scoffers, those scoffers out there who say the things that we talked about, don't want the day to come because for them the day means eternal condemnation and judgment. The pause, the delay, is designed to bring many to repentance. And so, what should our call be during the delay? Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Be saved because judgment is coming. The end is near. Repent now. We don't know when the end is coming. But we know the end is coming. In fact, on the calendar, it's the next thing. Like, let's think about that a little bit. Go back to that image. Like, on the the timeline of eternity, on the timeline of redemption, what's the next thing? The end. The end. The end. We're not waiting for the incarnation of the Messiah anymore. We're not waiting for the coming of the Messiah. He has come. What's next? He's coming back. He's coming back to raise the dead and bring judgment. He's coming back for the end. So be ready. I think that's what Peter is doing. I think he is using the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment as motivation for his people to live with practical holiness. There are some people, though, that say, no, 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 that's not what's going on. Peter's not talking about the end like that. He's talking about a cataclysmic event in history that would change the world entirely, that would cause so much social disruption that it would be like the end. Particularly, folks that make this argument are pointing out Peter making a reference to the overthrow of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. All right, track with me here, because this is a common theme. In fact, the guys that go down this road talking about Peter making a reference here to AD 70, they go down that road because it's their go-to move with several statements that Jesus makes about the nearness of the end. Like Jesus talks about things being fulfilled in the lives of his listeners. Like this generation will not pass away until these things come to pass. And so they go immediately to AD 70 in the overthrow of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple to say that that's what that's referring to. That's like the first fulfillment of that kind of stuff. And so they import that understanding to this and say the end is near because for Peter's audience, that is really just around the corner. They don't don't know it yet, but God knows it. And so through Peter, he's saying the end is near. There's this cataclysmic event that's going to happen in history that is going to be like the end of the world. It's going to be the breakup of all social norms that they're familiar with. I don't I don't think that's what he's doing. I find that position weak, particularly because Peter's audience is not in Jerusalem. Peter's audience is scattered all over Asia Minor. And most of Peter's audience here in 1 Peter, they're not Jewish in their background. They're Gentile in their background. And so for them, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the temple is not going to be like the end of the world for them. But there's a school that says that. The school that talks about some historical event that is so socially destructive that it feels like the end of the world if that's the case it's near so you so live live with faithfulness live with holiness thirdly some people argue that he's referring to the impending death of his readers the end is near you're going to die they say that's basically what he's what he's talking about here they're going to die either by natural causes according to the course of all humans or they're going to die by the impending persecutions that we know are just around the corner for them historically. No doubt Peter is aware of the growing hostility of the surrounding world toward his audience. And those persecutions are going to intensify quickly. And many in his audience are going to die as martyrs. He's already mentioned that some of them have died in the last few weeks text. Brothers and sisters, there's some validity to this approach. Because even if you want to convince yourself that the end, when it comes to the return of Christ, is far off, the end for you is near. The end of your life is near. and You don't know when it's going to happen. But it is near. The end is coming for all of us, whether it's in the form of Christ's return or our own death. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 27, and inasmuch as it is appointed for man once to die... After this comes the judgment. That sounds like the end. So there's a nearness. Whether we're talking about the return of Christ, whether we're talking about a cataclysmic event in history, or whether we're talking about your own death, the end is near. As I said, the first option is most likely, but all three land you essentially in the same place practically. Friends, Time is limited. The end is coming. This is not the time to walk aimlessly. This is not the time to play games. This is the time for godliness. This is the time for youth-usefulness. This is the time for expectation. This is not the time for speculation. This is not the time for stargazing. This is not the time for theorizing. This is not the time for laziness. This is the time for serious discipleship serious commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Tom Schreiner says it like this. This is so good. He says, nowhere does the New Testament encourage the setting of dates or idle speculation. Eschatology is invariably used to encourage believers to live in a godly way. He goes on and says, the imminence of the end should function as a stimulus to action in this world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles whose time is short should galvanize them to make their lives count now. And as I was studying this and reading this, Mike, like, I don't say that enough in my preaching. Preachers used to say this a lot. In fact, it became a cliche, a cliche that, that, that uh, we, we portray in movies and in cartoons where there's some guy with a sandwich board, is that what it's called? Standing on the corner, it says, the end is near. And we call them crazy. We call them lunatics. But the reality is, that's true. That should be a facet of our preaching. Friends, the end is near. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the end is near. So what kind of people ought you to be? People who are not ashamed when the Lord returns. People who are not ashamed when they go to die. Friends, neighbors. The end is near and judgment is coming. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He's the only hope. We need to recover this part of our preaching. Use it like Peter does as a motivation for action. For the believers to endure with faithfulness and to proclaim the gospel and for unbelievers to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. The end is near. And he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, The end is near. Therefore, that word therefore connects this indicative, this statement of fact, the end of all things is near, with the calls to action that follow, all four of them. All four of them are based in that indicative statement. The end is near. Therefore, be sober, be alert in prayer. Love fervently, show hospitality, and exercise your gifts because the end of all things is near. So let's talk about this call to clear-minded prayer. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. There are two imperatives here, actually. Two related imperatives. He calls the people to be of sound judgment and be of sober spirit. And some people try to take those two imperatives and highlight their differences. They say, what's the difference between being of sound judgment and being of sober spirit? But it is much better to take them together and see their sameness and not their differences for the purpose of emphasis. Be of sound judgment and be sober. We've already seen this language of sound judgment, self-control. It's translated in some translations in 1 Peter already. Look at it in chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, Fully set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed by making your mind ready for action and being self-controlled. You may remember this because I explained that the make your mind ready for action is gird up the loins of your mind. Do you remember that? And be ready to lean in and think hard. You're ready for action in your brain. And part of that is being self-controlled, in control of your faculties. NIV says, be alert. CSB says, be alert. The end of all things is near, so be alert. Be self-controlled. Be sound in your judgment. And he also says, be sober. I don't know why New American Standard inserts spirit there. Be of sober spirit. That's not in the original language. It's not super helpful. What we see here is be sober. And that sharply contrasts with the drunkenness and debauchery that we saw last week, right? Sharply contrast with the way the Gentiles live. Time's up for that. Time's up for being drunk and out of your mind. It's time to be sober, to think rightly, to have all of your faculties in play. Again, this has to do with clear thinking. Peter is calling the people to get their minds in the right place. Well, that sounds a lot like last week, doesn't it? Arm yourselves with what? The same mindset as Christ Arm yourselves in the fight against the flesh with the mindset of Christ. Well, here again, he's talking about the importance of your mind. Be of sound judgment. Be sober. Think clearly. Brothers and sisters, we need that. One scholar referred to this as a call to eschatological clear-headedness. That's a mouthful. Eschatological clear-headedness. That's not the way we usually lean. When we talk about eschatology, when we talk about last things, when we talk about the end of days, we usually go the opposite direction of clear-headedness, right? We go into all kinds of speculations about numbers and moons and stars and all these beasts and animals and helicopters and all these things, and it's anything but clear. But Peter is saying, it's near, so think clearly. It's near, so sober up and think rightly. We need this call to clear-headedness. And this clear-headedness couldn't be more different from the lost world around us. In many ways, what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is a stark contrast with what we saw last week in the lifestyle of the Gentiles. Remember, that's a reference to unbelievers. Peter is essentially saying, they live like that. We live like this. They live like that. You live differently because the end is near. Notice, that Peter links this call to clear-headedness to the spiritual discipline of prayer. This is wild. He doesn't just call them to think clearly, to be sober. He says, think clearly and be sober for prayer. The end of all things is near, so think clearly for prayer. We need to know that the end is near. We need to think clearly about that for the purpose of prayers. NIV says, so that you may pray. Expository commentary really convict me here. It says, let me put it this way. The mark of a Christian at the end of the age is a person on his or her knees in prayer. The mark of a Christian at the end of the age, which we are in, is a person on his or her knees in prayer. Super convicting. Especially in a season where things are crazy in this world. They have gone crazy. And people say, what are you going to do? I'm going to pray. That seems to be straight out of the text. That's not all I'm going to do, but that's the first thing I'm going to do. What are we going to do? We're going to think clearly and pray. We're going to think clearly so that we can pray. At our Wednesday night prayer meeting this week, I asked two questions that would help us wade through this passage in First Peter. Wednesday night prayer meeting, by the way, is great. And most of you are missing it. It is a blessing to come together in the middle of the week, to see each other, to sing together, to hear from the word, and to unite our hearts in prayer. It is a really good thing. I asked the group, and it's a small group, I said, How should we pray if the end of all things is near? What should be the quality of our praying if we know the end is near? And they said this, if the end is near, we should pray with urgency. They said we should pray with rejoicing because the end is near and he is coming for us. For us, there is rejoicing because the end is near. That should mark our prayers, rejoicing. They said we should pray continually. We should devote ourselves to prayer. They said we should pray with discipline. They said we should pray with seriousness and sobriety, with focus and intentionality. We should pray with expectation. We should pray with intensity. And then one guy said, and we should pray with some sorrow. We should pray with some sorrow because so many people don't know him. We should pray with some sorrow because we have friends and family who will stand condemned if nothing changes. When the end comes, they will be condemned if nothing changes. So they should, there should be a sense of sorrow in our hearts as we pray. The nearness of the end should affect how we pray. And the second question I ask is, if the end is near, for what should we pray? What should we pray for if the end is near? And they said, in accord, they are good students, they said in accordance with First Peter, we should pray for holiness We should pray that God would make us holy because the end is near and we want to be found holy when that day comes. We should pray for hope. In a world of despair, we should pray for hope. They said we should pray for endurance, that we would press on even when it's hard. That fits with 1 Peter. They said we should pray for salvation. For those family members and friends and co-workers that don't know Christ, we should pray that God would save them for the billions of people who've never even heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. We should pray that God would raise up workers to go take the gospel to them. We should pray for salvation for the Kurds. We should pray for salvation for North African Arabs. We should pray for salvation for the Thai peoples. We should pray for salvation for all these unengaged, unreached people groups scattered all over the place that don't even have access to the gospel. We should pray for salvation with passion, we should pray with adoration, Laura said. Part of the part of what we should pray, because the end is near, is Lord, you are holy. Lord, you are great and awesome and wonderful, and we stand in awe of you. We should pray for wholehearted devotion to the Lord, not division with the world, not half of our heart given to the world and half of our heart given to the Lord, but wholehearted devotion to the Lord. We should pray for that. I just want to boil it down for you and say the end is near. We should pray. We should pray. Like prayer should be the mark of the Christian who knows they live in the last days. And for us, prayer doesn't seem to be a priority. Personally, corporately, doesn't seem to be a priority. Here are three applications from this text. Number one, the end is near. Whatever that means, it should provoke us to action. The nearness of the end should cause us to live with seriousness and urgency. If thoughts of the end drive you to wild speculation and gazing through telescopes rather than doing what the Lord has told you to do, rather than driving you to the word, to the Lord, to the church, to the world with the offer of salvation, if the end being near drives you to anything but that, you're doing it wrong. Judgment is coming. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Judgment is coming. The end is near. He died in your place so that you might be reconciled to God. The end is near. That's number one. Number two, have a clear head. Have a clear head in these last days. This is a contrast to the mixed up, uncontrolled thinking of the world. We are to be sober. We are to be self-controlled. We are to be constantly submitted to the word of God. The end is near. Have a clear head and pray. Pray as a private spiritual discipline. This is a struggle for me. The the spiritual discipline privately of prayer has consistently been a struggle in my life. And this text is convicting. And and would you give yourself an A plus in prayer? I I don't know a single believer that would do that. I don't know a single follower of Jesus that would be like, I got this prayer thing down. A plus gold star in prayer. We need to be people of private prayer. Secondly, we need to pray as a matter of corporate life. And we have set aside an hour every Wednesday night to do that. And it's so good. And we've seen so many glorious things. Last summer and the summer before, we prayed for salvation for specific children who are going off to camp, which many are going this week and next week. And some of them got saved. Like that, the Lord answered that prayer. We have prayed recently for a visa for Caleb to be able to stay in Thailand in the long term and not have to keep coming back and forth. And he has answered that prayer. Like this week, he has answered that prayer. And it's a joy and a privilege to be in on that. And I want you to be in on it. I want you to see that happen. I want you to enjoy even the times where he doesn't answer those prayers immediately. And we wait and we wait and we wait and we trust him. Let's pray. As a matter of personal spiritual discipline and as a matter of our corporate life here, let us be a people of prayer. We can all stand to grow in this. We must. We must. Let's stand together and pray. Father, you have told us today that the end is near. We believe that. We want to believe that more. We want to see that more clearly. And we want to respond to it properly, not with speculation, but with application, with discipline, with godliness, with evangelism, with growth, and with prayer. God, we want to be a praying people. Grow us in our personal prayer lives, in our private prayer lives. Grow us in that and grow us in our corporate prayer life. Thank you for all the encouraging things we have seen along the way. Use those encouragements to propel us forward. We ask this by your grace. We are so thankful for the privilege of prayer. We recognize that it's not something we deserve. We do not deserve to have the ear of the king of the universe. We do not deserve to be able to come into the presence of the God of all gods, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And and yet you not only allow us, you invite us in. You have made the way for us to come into your presence, not with terror, but with confidence and boldness as unto our Father. You are our Father because you have adopted us into your family by grace through faith in Christ. Father, thank you for the great privilege of prayer to know that we have your ear. The one who has all the power, the one who has all the authority, the one who sits on the throne and is control, we have your ear in prayer. Remind us of that great privilege and help us to avail ourselves of it all the time with urgency and with discipline and with focus and with expectation, with intensity. Lord, make us holy. Lord, give us hope. Lord, grant us endurance and patience. Lord, give us strength and wholehearted devotion to you. And Lord, save. Save our lost friends and neighbors. Save the lost people groups of the planet. Save the Kurds. Save North African Arabs. Save Thai peoples. Save them. By your grace, for your glory, we pray this all in Christ's name.